Welcome back to the third year of the Netflix podcast, Present Company. I'm your host, Krista Smith. This season, we have something really special for you. I'll be exploring a universal human emotion with our guests. Fear, a word that has gathered new meaning for many of us over the past year. Thank you for joining me. Today, I have with me the wonderful Jake Gyllenhaal. I first noticed his talent in October Sky when he was just a teenager, but completely fell in love with him as a performer after seeing Donnie Darko, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary. Since then, he's brought us unforgettable films such as Brokeback Mountain, Zodiac, and Nightcrawler, one of my all-time favorites. Jake and I have sat down many times over the years to discuss his various projects and other frivolities, but today I'm delighted to focus on his phenomenal performance in his latest film, The Guilty. Without further ado, Jake Gyllenhaal. Welcome, Jake Gyllenhaal. Thank you. It's great to see you. And yes, we were previously talking about your sister, Maggie, who's also having a giant moment at this time with her film, The Lost Daughter. And I was just laughing with her when I saw her or reminding her that when I met her, I had put you in Vanity Fair and I was a huge fan of yours. I mean, first of all, loved you in October Sky and then it was game over after Donnie Darko. And since then, I've been with you, I feel like, every step of the way. And now I'm at Netflix and I can't wait to be with you every step of the way on this journey. But I reminded her that it was you who said to me, like, Christy, you have to meet my sister. She's so talented. You have to meet her. She's really great. And I just love that moment of the little brother and the older sister. And now both of you hitting your stride. Like, it, it's just creatively, it feels like you've never been better. And you were able to celebrate Maggie's directorial debut at Venice Film Festival. Come on, that must have been wonderful. It was so good to be there with her. That was the vibe for real. It was just mm-hmm. like being there with my sister and just tripping out on, you know, I premiered Broadway Mountain there yeah. and she's been there so many times. And then like to be there with her, having directed a film to support her, I was just so, I was so happy I didn't have to do any interviews that I think you could feel that energy. <laughs> no, I was so happy for her and like, so excited for her and I, I like it was all in it you know yeah so yeah it's great it's great and this film The Guilty which is just a wild ride from the second you turn it on I was riveted and terrified oddly like I had a pit in my stomach and I kind of knew I thought I knew what was going to happen but I really really enjoyed it so Thank you for joining me to talk about that and a lot of other things. So, Jake, the guilty. You're alone. It's you and a phone and basically a headset, and that is it. I mean, what made you want to do this part, obviously? And then how did you put this all together in the middle of COVID? I saw the original film out of Sundance a few years ago, and I just, something about it hit me in a way where I felt like, you could transpose the story into an American context and it would just have a really interesting reverberation, you know, and, and something in, in me responded to, I think, and had been responding to pieces where, you know, the imagination was an enormous, of the audience was an enormous part of the experience. You know, we have, we have, we have experiences in movies more and more that have to do with, we see everything, we're shown everything. Um, sort of taken by the hand and guided very easily. And I loved the idea of a movie where 
it took a lot of the elements of cinema as we know it away. And then I think made, made us participate even more. That really got me. And then I also felt like transposing it to America with all the ideas that are the, are the undercurrents in the movie, along with the thrill ride of what it is. You're dealing with someone who's in the middle of the center of all of our systemic issues. And it plays very differently now than it would have five years ago, six years ago. And I just felt like it was, I just felt it in my bones. Sometimes I can't really give an explanation as to why uh, I wanted to do something so badly and why I put so much of myself into it for a number of years. <laughs> and you get out on the other end and someone asks you the question and you're like, I, some weird thing was telling me to do it. I, I, I don't know what it was, but I take complete responsibility. Um, and that's sort of how it feels with this. You know, it feels like there was a muse speaking to me and I just sort of felt like I had to do it. And then what it actually brought out was a wonderful relationship with the original director of the original film. We're developing a movie together. He's deeply talented. I believe he's like sort of the next Denis Villeneuve, you know, and, uh, we have a very funny relationship because apparently when he was making the original movie, he had pictures of me as his inspiration to make the movie. He had pictures of me in other movies on his, on his <clears throat> sort of wall of photographs. And then he said, when he saw the next version, <laughs> he's tripping out. Cause he was like, you were one of my muses for the movie. So it was, this is, it's a beautiful process and how we did it. But I can't really give you a clear answer as to why. I just felt it in my bones. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say about the visuals because I was imagining all of it, the the white van, the people, the and I know the vo you only hear the voices. There's a lot of other characters in this film, but you but you don't see them. And I just feel like we're so inundated with images, whether it's on social media or, in, like you say, in film and art everywhere in the news. And it maybe that's it. I, it didn't trigger, but that's exactly why I was so, I didn't look at any other device. I wasn't focused on any other thing. I was completely immersed for 90 minutes in this film. Before this worldwide pandemic, I was on stage and I was doing a monologue for a year, first off Broadway and then on Broadway. And the, the, the feeling that I had uh, as you're telling a story, I was basically in a spotlight telling the story for an hour on stage, was a feeling when the audience's imaginations came alive, where I disappeared and the story that I was telling came to them and then their stories started mixing in with the one I was telling. And I could, it was palpable, I could feel it when it happened. Um, Sometimes it took a little bit longer. Sometimes it was immediate. You know, sometimes I struggled in and out with them as an audience. Even when the audiences went from 250 people to 1,000, you know, onto Broadway. I like, I love that feeling of, of we have so much power inside of our own minds and the use of our own imagination. And that is really what cinema is about, is like the tension outside of the frame. And I just... I think, yeah, you're right. We're used to being, seeing everything, wanting to see everything, needing to see everything. That it's almost like um, being brought to like an overgrown garden. <laughs> you know, you're sort of like, I thought this was gone. I, I haven't been here for years. Oh, wow. There are lots of flowers, you know. That's what it feels like, you know, to me at least. I mean. But. Yeah, no, I pictured it all in my mind. Um, and also it reunited you with Antoine Fuqua, who I happen to also love. And I love the movie that you did before Southpaw with him. Um, and 
I read somewhere, I read very recently, obviously, that this was shot in 11 days. Is that true? Can you kind of take me through that? And obviously none of the other voice actors were with you. Um, that was all over the phone. Or how did you even do that? Uh, it was very beta. The whole process was like massively beta. When I sent Antoine the script, I said to him, I always had a vision of making this movie in a really short period of time. I also think that's the only way you can get a filmmaker of Antoine's stature is to tell them, here's a really interesting script. You only have to shoot it in five days. You want to do it? You know? And he was, he called me the next day and was in, I think not only because of the story, but I think because of the idea of shooting it in a very short period of time, we both kind of got off on that idea, the challenge of it. We're similar in that way. You know, you, mm-hmm. You kind of push us to a limit and we enjoy it. We really had filmed the whole movie in nine days. And given we were in Los, shooting Los Angeles in October of 2020, every, every day was an impending lockdown. You know, um, we knew that. We kind of knew we were flying into the epicenter. We knew we were. We had a certain amount of time to do it. And, if, and because of that, weirdly, it wasn't like we had a 50-day shoot. And if we had to stop, we all had, you know, created a certain amount of space we would shoot it in. This was like, if we shut down on day three of this shoot and we had to take two weeks off, we were done. I don't know how many months have gone by before we had to come back and shoot it. So we, uh, we scheduled it within an inch of its life. We decided we were going to shoot it in five acts, 20 pages each. Now we would shoot, Antoine would shoot simultaneous cameras, three on me, and we would have the actors on a Zoom, depending on the section that they were in. And we had actors in Australia, we had actors in Los Angeles, we had actors in New York, we had actors all over the country and the world, London. And uh, they would call in at all hours of the, their own day. And we would say, okay, for the next six hours, we're all going to be here. You just sit on Zoom and we'll call you or cue you. If you need to go out, you know, do something, we'll call you and say, we're about to, we change setups, come back in. And uh We'd roll 20 minute long takes and we would choreograph the whole thing. The first AD would be queuing on a Zoom like we are on. And I would cue him with when I would dial or when, you know, the script assigned that a call would come in. And it, it was a absolute fucking mess the first two days. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was like repeated voices. Like I could hear my voice repeating back into my own ear through, you know, but we basically shot, you know, 20 minute long takes, 20 pages a day. And uh, that's how we made the movie. To hear you describe it like that, it, it it's almost like theater in a way, right? The intensity, because this whole movie rests on your performance. And the reason why it is successful is because of your performance and the intensity and the variations that you you take us through. But there really isn't a relaxed moment. We feel We feel everything you're feeling. How was it to sustain that? for that, you know, 20 minute takes that, that kind of intensity and focus. And it's also physical, even though you're in one space, it's a very physical performance. Um, Can you talk to me about how you sustain that and how you got to that place? When a movie takes place in a 911 dispatch center, there's already an inherent tension that you don't even have to play. So maybe it's my experience now. Um, knowing that you pick an environment and you have to do less work as a result of that. So I, I knew that just sitting in that chair with calls ringing in the background and the anticipation of an audience, you know, wondering which calls going to come in next and not being sure 
would allow me for allow me like a, a whole big space to kind of play around in. So I didn't have to create much, frankly. I had to do a lot of listening and um, that's what we're doing. So, you, you know, that's what we're doing as audience. And that's what he, he's doing. In terms of his journey, I think, you know, he's a character that finds himself in a really, you know, tough position from the jump and is denying a lot of things in his own life. And as I think it goes for all of us, you know, uh, the universe teaches you the lessons that you need to learn, you know, and like his just start coming at him that night. And so I just eased into it. I just said to myself, this is a solid enough story. It works really well. Just stay within these moments and they will show you what they're supposed to be, you know, very much like a 911 operator would do. Now, the weird part was that someone near Antoine had tested positive for COVID the Friday before he was supposed to start shooting on the Monday, which meant that he had to go into quarantine, which meant that for a moment we thought we wouldn't be able to make the movie, but then he tested negative subsequently, like four day after four days. So we made this plan where we like hardwired him in a van that had three monitors a block away from where we were shooting. And he directed the entire movie from afar from this van, like guarded by his friend who was an ex-Navy SEAL to make sure no one came near the van. He came in and out of it, masked, and that was it. And so it was this like this experience of him being very, very far away from me shooting um, where we were only in contact with sound. I mean, we FaceTime every once in a while and I would climb over this ladder and stand at the top of the wall. And sometimes he'd come out of his van and we would talk like Romeo and Juliet, you know, <laughs> from like in between setups, but that was it. And so he was having a very similar experience to what I was having. And we were really isolated. And I think that also added to the process. Um, and so the whole thing was really added tension of the time we were in mm. The, the fact that we were shooting in, in one of the first movies in that period of time to be making a movie. I mean, everyone was like, oh my God, are we actually making a film? And we were also grateful to be there. But all the tension of the time was in it too. I mean, as an actor, when you have all of those things, selfishly, you have to do very little. Why was it important for you and Antoine to weave systemic issues into the fabric of this film? I think it was really essential for me and Antoine I think the reason both Antoine and I wanted to make the movie was because of what this says about our systems and the the preconceptions we have about each other. One of the essential parts of the movie is that we do not see these people, that we, we put our conception or preconception of who we think they are, how they look because of how they sound, how they might be behaving because of how they sound, how they're, you know, that all of those things get turned on their head as you, you go through the journey of the movie. And this person you think might be doing right or might be doing wrong is actually doing right, is actually doing wrong. And those questions all come back to the same thing, which is they are all communicating through a system. They are all either blocked or aided by this system and most usually blocked. I mean, there's a line that Henry says, Peter Sarsgaard plays, where he says, you know, I, I couldn't afford, I couldn't afford her medicine, you know, which was like a, just a very important piece of everything. I couldn't afford to do this. I couldn't afford to do that. I, 
you know, I, I don't trust this. I don't trust that. There's just all these issues of trust, all these issues of social, socioeconomic, racial, sexist, like all these things going on in the midst of it and a system that doesn't allow these people to communicate. And that's what I think Antoine always wanted to get at. And that's why he called me up and went like, I see this. This is why I want to do this movie. Because it was so important that, first of all, it's this great thriller, but also underneath in the end, it's saying something. Mm -hmm. That was well said. Thank you for that. All right. So, Jake, you've got this production company. You just turned 40, right? Maybe? Not yet. Just turned 40. No, I just turned 40. Oh, yeah. my God. Happy birthday. Happy, happy belated birthday. Happy, happy belated six-month birthday. I'm so happy about that. I am really happy that you're 40 now. But that just means I'm that much older, too. So I don't know why I'm smiling, to be honest. Um, As we get older, we just get all get closer to one another. Yeah, we do get closer to one another. And I'm just very impressed by everything you're doing. And I look at your... Uh, you know, dossier of what's coming up. And I, there's some more good stuff happening at Netflix. But I have a really important question that's just selfishly one for me. What did you master during COVID in terms of your cooking? Because while everyone's like baking bread and banana bread and, you know, we're all doing things. And I was actually thinking about this, like, what did Jake like, I wish I lived close to where you were because like, we could have been in a bubble and I would have been fed so well. So oh, you would have. <laughs> um, what have I mastered? I mean, I, I one of the best parts of all of this has been slowly moving through res- recipe to recipe. Even things like catching a fish and filleting it myself, which I have, I'm ashamed to say I had never done before. Things like that, but I mean, I have cooked like a motherfucker. I mean, I cook every single day, twice a day. And all right, take me through a pasta. Come on, just give me like, what's your go-to? If I were coming over right now in like ninety minutes, what 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 would I get? Oh man, well, I just had, I just, I got some fresh bluefish. So I, I've been like last night, I made like a caponata with like all these fresh eggplant tomatoes and these all the pep, everything's everything's going right we're in towards the end of all these seasons so it's like the eggplant's fantastic tomatoes are just on the edge there's peppers everywhere hot peppers um so i made like a i have this really great little oven this uni oven do you know those mm-hmm. ovens mm-hmm. and um so i make pizza in that oven but uh it's also really wonderful for cooking everything else so last night i made a bluefish fresh bluefish. I caught the food bluefish and, uh, made a caponata and I put it on top and then I, you know, wrapped it in aluminum foil. And I, and then what's so beautiful about it is like when you're done, when it's seared and hot in that oven, the, the skin peels off and you just peel it off and it is the best thing you've ever eaten because everything's so fresh. So that was what I had last night. Um, I also made a really great, I made a stock out of the, out of the fish heads and stuff like that. And I made a, chowder that was crazy good from um uh from the new york times it's just smoky i could go on and on oh i'm i'm ready for the show it's like with the corn like now all the corn corn's edging out too yeah. but you know i caught a black bass and uh made made some uh put some bass in there and it's just and it's just you know I where guess, are you, you catching know. all this fish are you in upstate out, or where are you i don't know out on the cape yeah on the on cape the nice nice i could catch the fish i just can't cook the fish well let's catch some fish i'll cook the fish <laughs> it's like i mean and right, there's nothing better than you know fish stock you know mm-hmm. this fresh fish stock I, it's just crazy so. 
Anyway, we could go on and on. I know we about could. That. Okay, so then I'm going to ask more more selfish Krista questions. So I didn't get to see Sunday in the Park with George, and I'm really mm-hmm. upset about that because I feel like I've seen most of your work on stage. You have been you have been so so lovely and supportive for so many years. Like so, but it's true. You're the only one who can claim that. Actually, by the way. <laughs> When I talk to anyone else, they're like, well, I've been a grad. I'm like, you haven't seen anything I've done. But you <laughs> yeah. suffered through it. So I really, I really appreciate it. I have. I find value in everything. Um, but I'm really <laughs> bummed that I didn't that I didn't see the musical. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like the one thing I really wanted to see, but it like I was it just didn't happen. So are we gonna get to have that side of Jake anytime soon? Or are you gonna do a musical, film a musical, go back on Broadway, do one that I can come see? Because you seem really busy. Uh, I'm not, actually. It's great. I uh, I mean, I am and I'm not. I, I, we are, I was just on the phone today. We have a, a potential little plan. Obviously, theater is all backed up. So we were supposed to do Sunday Park in Georgia and London last summer. Um, that didn't happen, but we have a little plan up our sleeve. So I'm, I'm hoping we can get all the people who bought tickets to that, you know, give them, uh, give them what they, what they, what they bought their tickets for, but I, I wouldn't give up on it just yet. Okay. You may, may be able to see it soon. Okay. Well, as soon as it comes out, I will get a ticket and I will be there to see it. Just um, April. All right. So this season I've been asking everybody about fear because I feel like it is the one human emotion that we all collectively experience and a lot of it in the same way. And I think the last 18 months, especially, it's been a top of mind for me. So how's your relationship with fear these days in terms of kind of all aspects of your life, you know? And when you hit 40, we really, you know, we are in mid-age. I mean, I'm older than you, so I've passed that mid-age. But you know, it is the quintessential point of middle age. You've learned a lot. You have a lot more to, to learn and do. But, you know, you've lived enough to understand life. And I'm just curious, how are you feeling about fear these days, Jake? I mean, I think it's 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 safe in an artistic space to move through fear. I mean, that's like, that's what's so wonderful about being an interpreter of other people's words, you know, and when you're a performer, I mean, that's what you are. I think I, I want to, as you see my sister do, and I'm on my way to doing move from that space a little more and start to write my own words and create my own ideas. Um, and I, and I think that's part of the evolution of moving through my fear, you know, um, doesn't mean I don't want to continue to express and interpret other people's things, but I think uh, it's always allowed for a safe space to say, I'm going to bring, you know, my fears, my, my struggles, my, my, I wouldn't even say fear, like terrors, my perversities, all these things into us, my joys, you know, into a space where people look at it and they say, this is, it's a safe space. It's almost easier as an artist, I would just say. I mean, there's a lot of claims to it being like, you know, uh, what a brave thing this person did or whatever. I, I, I think it's very safe. And I've learned that over the many years that I've been lucky enough to do it is I've actually said to myself, Oh, I'm being really brave because I'm doing this thing. I'm almost convinced myself, but really I've just been making a movie. Like what's so brave about that more and more. What I love about getting older is that as I get scared or as I feel terror, fear, I always know 
that our, our desire generally, particularly if it's coming from inside of us, is to run away from it, to do what we can to avoid that. And that has never been a successful run for me. <laughs> Learned that really, really uh, uh, way too many times um, have I missed out on that. And oftentimes I just, I know in my bones now, you turn around and you look right at it. And so often the size of what it is in a shadow is not what it is when you look at it in, in reality. And so I just turn around and I look at it. And it always deepens me. In terms of what I'm afraid of, my answer is just a sort of generalized, you know, kind of like, I'm afraid for all of us. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I feel of, you. Same. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I'm afraid of our unconscious dismissal of all the, of, of, and our need for convenience. And I say that for myself. You know, I've just become, I've grown so accustomed to things being convenient. And I say that as a very spoiled actor. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just, it's, that will lead us to doom, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that's my, that's my. <laughs> I'm afraid of why are more people afraid? Uh, I think uh, they are. I think yeah, we all are. I think we are. I just think it's like how close we can get to it. And I think we're all in different positions where we're doing things that are much more important to help other people, for instance, than sitting down and discussing a scene, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think there's time for it sometimes, you know, it's like talk to a essential worker or first responder. Like, I don't know if there's time to feel that fear when you're trying to save someone's life, you know, but again, I'll go back to, I think the thing to not to bring it back to the movie, but the thing that I think is really important that was very interesting is mental health, mental health, because in a time when we're talking so much about our physical health and, and this, this pandemic and, and, and all the terrible things that it's done, I think there's our whole other side of it, which is our response to it. And that has to do with our, our, our mental health. And that is equally, if not more important. So I just, I wish that for everybody, like comfort in their mind. You know? mm-hmm. So acting, you yeah. have been doing this. I caught City Slickers on like some cable show or something with my kids. I was like, wait, what? I didn't even know that you. <laughs> How old are your kids? My kids are old now. They're 13 and 15. Oh. Can you believe that? That's great. You've been yeah. through it. Yeah. So they're, we're watching and they're big cinephiles. Of course, I, you know, part reluctantly. And then, you know, we had a trade off. Like I'd watch all the Marvel and then I'd make them watch some good classics and we would do one, one and the other, one and the other. But City Slickers and I saw that cute. Oh, my God, that Jake face and primary colors and good, like, 80s fashion with the big glasses. And I've been thinking about how long, when I knew I was going to speak to you, just, like, how long you've been doing this and that your parents let you do it, kind of, but not really. Like, they had a real choke chain on you. Like, okay, you can audition, but if you get the part, you can't do it. You got to go to school. You've got to do these things. You can't leave town and whatnot. But yet you kept doing it. And you've never not, you've never hesitated. I just kind of wonder, like, what, what is it in you that made you want to be an actor and, and, you know, do this against, you know, against all odds and continue to do it? And you went to school and then you dropped out to do more of it. So it's a two-part question. So that's my first part. And the second part, uh, which I also ask everybody I speak to, what kind of advice do you have for other artists that are 
down that are not, you know, achieving what they wish they were achieving and are struggling? I would say, idealistically, I had no other choice. I felt like there was a sort of path for me down this this way. And so I followed it. But also, I think often back to my first experiences of performing, and I think of the joy that I felt before any of the other stuff. It was just, just great, great joy. I remember like going into auditions and... Um, just sort of knowing I had an edge inside the words, knowing that somehow like almost like a skier, like you knew you could get down that mountain kind of faster. I, I it was a confidence that I, you know, I, I can't really put into words. I just know that I knew it was for me. So I continue to do it against all the odds, which has been very interesting. You know, there's so many different stages of a career if you could do it for long enough. And I'm faced with them differently in every decade, every number of years where I'm like, oh, whoa, okay. You, you know, you just don't do it the same way over a long period of time. And to sustain a career is just, it's mind, it's mind boggling sometimes to try and figure out ways in which you can sort of move and change. And um, I don't know if that answers your, your question, but I, there's just something in me. I just haven't been able to deny it for a long time. And I just love it so much that I probably would have done it in any form. Mm-hmm. In terms of people who are struggling, who really feel it in their bones, I think you really know if it's something that is meant for you. Like you, like, you have to ask yourself in those times whether it is really meant for you or whether something else is. And I think the bravery of anyone in their life is being able to find and be proud of what they're actually excellent at. And I think we live in a world where there are these standards you know, of that attention in a particular way is what makes you successful. And as I get older, what I see is the people who I admire the most are the ones who have take great pride in what they are actually meant to be doing. And they do it so well for the world. And it's, that's the thing. I think um, being an actor or being a performer or whatever, or being an artist of some kind is a dream. But there are so many, so many things to be. That's my, I hate to, I mean, <laughs> You know, I mean, sometimes I sit there and you're talking and we're talking about cooking and mm. I get sometimes even more joy out of that than anything in my life. And I um, think about the many ways in which I could have lived my life. People who make jokes and say, oh, well, yeah, like go work in a kitchen, you get your ass kicked in a week, you know, but maybe that's what I was meant to do. <laughs> you did do that a little bit, didn't you, when you were a teenager? Didn't you have to? Didn't I, you did, work? I did, I did, I did. But I mean, like, you know, you hit that age, <laughs> yeah. right? And you go... And if you've, if you've had a certain amount of success, I'd just say, um, it's what Jay-Z says, which I love. Like everyone has a genius level talent. It's just our, it's whether we're willing to listen to it Mm -hmm. and take pride in it. I don't know. I'm not, the other thing I know is I'm not meant to be giving advice. That's basically. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's what everybody says. Okay. So when you're walking on the street, 20 years later, do people still stop you and talk about Donnie Darko? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, not as much anymore. I think that's... Now it's Spider-Man. Someone told me once, they said I have the same fans, they just have blue hair now. And I think, <laughs> I think that that happens, you know. But I think that, uh, yes, they do. And I, it's really interesting to see something translate to generation. generation. I, put a, I, put up a, I posted a thing about the 20th anniversary of Donnie Darko on like my Instagram a few months ago. And 
I was so surprised to see who responded to it. And they were all generations, young actors and older actors and different people that I know. And it, it really means a lot when something is true, you know, it does last. Mm-hmm. And to be a part of it is amazing. Mm-hmm. So even when I put my phone on airplane mode, the other phones ring. <laughs> For whom the bell <laughs> tolls, Jake. Clearly it's my mother. <laughs> you know, uh, I learned tenacity from her. That's my advice is, you know, tenacity. <laughs> the Jill and I, I well, congrats on the film, and I always look forward to the whatever you're doing next. I will be looking out, and I will, you know, track you down, and we can talk about that. Thanks. Well, it's Michael Bay next, so get ready for that. Michael Bay. Oh, my God. As my son would say, lots of explosions. I want to watch that. <laughs> it's a good one. It's it's, it's fun. <laughs> okay. For the whole family. It's, gonna, it's for the cinephile and for your son. <laughs> All right. I'm in. I'm in. I'm sold. All right, Jake, take care. It's good to see you. Nice to see you too. Thanks so much for joining me. The Guilty is streaming on Netflix October 1st. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.